This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with current GB athlete, Amelia Coltman. The Bob Skeleton athlete discusses her pathway into the sport, as well as her learning methods during skill acquisition. I hope you enjoy. Right, so Amelia, firstly, thank you for doing this because I know you've been very, very busy and kind of out of country and stuff. Um, I guess the first question is, how was your kind of first season of uh, competing? Yeah, so um, I've trained in the sport for two years already. um, And yeah, this is my first year of competing and it completely surpassed all my expectations um, because I actually came away with the title um, on the Europa Cup circuit that was on. Um, that consisted of eight races, um, and I was consistent over all of them. Well, I actually only did seven, so managed to win the title of seven, which was amazing. Um, but also, yeah, just learning how to compete. That was my main goal going in, because I'd not had experience competing at an international level before. Um, I played tennis before I did skeleton, um, and I was at sort of like a county regional level, so there was never that much pressure to perform. Um, but actually the pressure that I felt on the race days I've really enjoyed and I found I thrived under that pressure. Okay so obviously you mentioned there pressure is one thing what other things did you learn kind of about yourself or the competition aspect of how to compete at the highest level? Um, I think the main thing was to just focus on myself I was really surprised with how easy I found it to focus on myself and not get carried away with or what time has that person done they're my main rival sort of thing I didn't look at anyone's times I wasn't listening to the commentator I was purely focused on myself and what I needed to do Um, because in my second race I found myself because in skeleton you do two uh, heats and it's the quickest of the two heats in after the first heat I found myself in first place which was so unexpected Um, and I'd had a really good run and I was thinking I've either got to put the same run down or better to obviously win. Um, So that was like a different type of pressure. Um, But I managed to actually better my performance by like half a second, which is in skeleton is a massive time frame. It's decided by hundreds of seconds, so half seconds big. Um, So yeah, to, to experience the different types of pressures as well was really good and is going to be really valuable for the future. So, obviously, during those eight races, you, I'd assume you'd have gone down different tracks and stuff. How does like the research process in terms of identifying tracks and areas that you might be able to yeah. pick up time and might lose time in that, how does that happen or work? Um, so, before we go to a track, um, well, because, like I said, we'd had two years of training, so I'd been to all of the tracks before, but um, you can watch uh, point of view videos, so like the the view from the skeleton sled, what it looks like. Um, there's those on YouTube. So we'll watch those just to understand which way the corners go firstly, how many corners there are, um, how many oscillations there are in corners. So an oscillation is um, when the sled like goes up and down in a wave pattern. Um, and then we think about the type of steers that we might need to do. Because in skeleton, it looks like we're just laying there on what people call a tea tray, it's actually a sled, Um, but actually you're doing like three, maybe three, four steers in a corner, um, just to keep the sled on line, but it's really important that you don't do too many steers, because too many steers slows you down, because it's extra friction on the ice, Um, so it's sort of getting the balance. Um, We also do a hell of a lot of visualisation, so I'll get my sled out, um, put it on the floor, lay on it in my position that I would slide in um, and just go through the run in my head um, because when we train we only do two runs a day which sounds like nothing but it's actually mentally and physically exhausting um, and yeah I'll just lay on my sled, go through it because they say every time you visualise it's like another run to your bank um, and yeah, it's like experiencing it. If you can make it really vivid in your visualisation, then it's really valuable. So how often would you do that 
in terms of if you're going out to a track, how long do you get between each race? Between the races, yeah. um, we race every week. So how often or how much in the lead up to that race would you spend visualising? Um, it's quite hard because once you finish one race, you then move on to the next one and before you know it, you're already on the track sliding. So I don't spend... I've got to the point where I feel experienced enough that I don't have to over-visualise and overthink. I just do a few runs down and then that's like if I'm feeling confident then that's enough um and then once I've had my first runs down that track I can then tweak bits of my visualization um but it's really important that you don't visualize the perfect lines um that you actually visualize the ones where you're hitting the walls maybe a little flip off of a corner or something because in skeleton it's so hard to have a perfect run it's very rare I've never had a perfect run um, it's all about sort of the person who can get down without making the most mistakes um, and yeah that's it's a really helpful tool to visualize mistakes and be relaxed making those mistakes okay so I'm going to kind of go back kind of right to the start Jake who's been on this podcast kind of told me briefly the story of how you actually ended up getting into the sport and that type of stuff can you just talk through that process because when he's explaining to me it sounded pretty crazy obviously quite interesting as well yeah so I was in my third year at uni I was doing sports science at Sheffield Hallam um, and I signed up um, I put my name down to volunteer with UK sport because I wanted to move into working with elite athletes I'm not sure what discipline but just sort of like working with the EIS or something like that um, so I put my name down to help um, at this talent identification campaign. Uh, it was called Discover Your Gold. And basically they're looking for athletes that produce power for uh, sprint cycling, skeleton and sprint canoe. Um, and I was testing athletes. Um, I was like testing measures of power, so like jumping, uh, sprinting, what bike sprints. Um, and then I thought, oh, you know what, I think I fancy a go. Um, and it was the last possible testing day. I travelled up to Scotland um, and I just thought, well, what have I got to lose? I might as well just try it. I've, I feel like I've got some sort of talent. Um, so, yeah, I just had a go at all the tests. And then I got a phone call the same day saying, can you come down to Bath in like two days time? to have a go um, with skeleton and I thought oh my god okay <laughs> because if anything I thought I'd get through to the cycling one because my parents were cyclists um, so to get a phone call from skeleton was a bit bizarre at the time um, but obviously I said yes because I wanted to see what it was all about um, so I came down to Bath um, and well in that first testing phase I think there was 4,000 athletes um, and they took 50 through into the skeleton strand of it and then um what did we do yeah we came down to bath and we did uh oh we had to go on the posh track which is our only facility for training skeleton in this country so it's basically a dry land sort of hill that goes downhill and then it goes uphill and it's almost like train tracks so you have a sled on wheels so at the start, we push the sled as quickly as we can um, and then load onto it and it goes down the hill, up the hill and then back again. And that's all we have. We don't have any corners or anything like that. Um, and they were basically looking at how we could be coached, how coachable we were. Um, and we did some more physical testing just to see the power we could produce again. Um, and then... I got through to the next round. It's all like kind of like an X Factor style process <laughs> yeah. where they keep whittling the numbers down. Yeah. Um, and so that was phase two. So phase three was boot camp sort of phase. And it was the hardest phase. We went to the Royal Marines and they were testing our psychological sort of strength and capabilities. Um, and they were just trying to put us out of our comfort zone majorly. I was out of my comfort zone all day. <laughs> yeah. We were dressed in all the army gear with the boots, like the big black heavy boots, um, the big trousers, coat. Um, and then we were running around this obstacle course, um, 
and it was really long. And we're power athletes, we are not endurance <laughs> athletes, so it was just so difficult. And people throwing up, people saying, I can't do this, this isn't for me. Um, which is exactly why the test was in, to break people down. Um, and then we were doing things like knocking doors down with these big metal things and like learning how to um, detect if there's like a person behind the door or a bomb or something. It was it was incredible, but yeah, I was so far out of my comfort zone. Um, and yeah, so there, there was 21 people I think in that phase um, and I thought right I've done all I can I've shown my determination I don't know if it's enough um, so I was waiting eagerly for about a week for a phone call um, to see whether I got into the next phase which was going on ice and actually trying the sport um, and got the phone call over the moon couldn't believe it because I really doubted myself massively that I could ever make it that far um, and then I think 10 of us travelled out to Austria, um, where we had a go at the sport, which was incredible. Um, you don't start from the top of the track, because obviously it's a dangerous <laughs> sport, they're not just going to send us down. So we started from halfway, um, and I remember just putting my sled in the track, laying on it, the coach just pushed me off by my feet, and then he said, oh, I'll see you at the bottom then, and I was like, oh, I hope so, <laughs> if I make it. Um, but because we started at halfway, I was actually surprised. It it felt actually quite slow compared to what I imagined it to be. Um, but then the next day we moved to the top, and I've never felt nerves like that before. Um, yeah, I just trundled off the top. Was not going to sprint off the top. That was crazy. So I just walked off, got onto the sled, and off I went. And I hit probably every wall on the way down because I didn't actually know what I was doing yet. Um, completely out of control, but I knew that I loved it and the speed that came with it and the adrenaline. So like the adrenaline stood at the top and then the relief at the bottom when you know that you've got all your limbs in contact still with your body. Um, it's an amazing feeling and quite addictive actually. So yeah, that was the whole process. And then after that, I showed that I had potential on ice. So I showed potential in all the areas and then got selected onto the GB programme. So, obviously most people I imagine that come across the sport or bobsleigh or that type of stuff, probably every four years, Winter Olympics, they see it on TV along with curling and all the other sports, mm. and that most people probably think that is mental because obviously you go side to side crashing into a thing. But the majority of people don't ever actually experience kind of going down the track or doing that. Mm -hmm. What is it like when you're first standing up there in terms of you've mentioned you were halfway, but when you were first at the top of a run and you're probably going over your head going, I've seen this on TV and I've seen crashes on TV and I've seen all that. You obviously you mentioned you were nervous, but what's that actually feel like when you're kind of getting ready to actually go down? You think I'm going to be going however many kilometers per hour. I'm going to be hitting into walls and stuff. Does it hurt? All of that type of stuff. Yeah, you try not to think of that side of it, but for the first good two years I stood on the block at the start line thinking like having second thoughts do I definitely want to do this do I want to risk my life and then you find a way to calm yourself down through like breathing and and like I say the visualization making yourself confident before and prepared um I think yeah that once you've got past the nerves skeleton is really fun um, but it can be hard to get past the nerves, especially when you go to really fast tracks or tracks with loads of pressure because we pressure is basically G-force, G-forces, um, and we experience up to five Gs, which is the same as a Formula One driver. And the way that feels is like you're, if you were laying on the floor on your front um, and someone came and sat on your head and you tried to lift it up, that's what the pressure feels like. Um, and I'm known for having a really weak neck so you know when I'm coming because you can hear my helmet dragging along the ice it's like Shh. and everyone's like oh yeah that's her again <laughs> um, and yeah so obviously along with that it's really hard to then see anything because your face is literally on the floor so you have to use your peripheral vision massively to see where the walls are 
um, when you're in a corner, uh, whether you're going up or down, because like I say, you need to get your stairs right, because you could end up like hitting the roof in a corner if you don't do your stair, um, or coming out on your back or something, so yeah, and the quicker athletes in skeleton are the most relaxed. Um, so when you're going at like 80 mile an hour, it's so important to be so calm and relaxed and it's a skill and it takes time to, to learn that. Um, you can't force it, it has to be through experience, that's what I've found this year. So obviously you kind of, it's a quick transition from kind of never having done the sport before and then to where you are now, in that you would have learned loads of different skills and obviously you mentioned there that coming to Bath and the things was looking at how coachable you are and how you're able to learn in terms of like your steering or your running and certain techniques laid down how did you learn those skills what kind of pathway did you go through in order to develop those to get to where you are now um so like I say, we train for the first two years of the program um we don't compete purely because we're brand new to the sport we don't know what to do yet. Um, we're just perfecting and fine-tuning our skills. Um, I think, you, well, we get told what steers to do, um, but it's not until you actually do it that you can understand that, what's required on the ice. Um, and I think, yeah, the coaches will say, steer here with a toe, steer here with a shoulder, but it's not until you then do it that you know how hard to steer or how long to steer. Um, and I'm definitely the type of athlete that learns from mistakes. I crash quite a lot in training, but then once I've done a crash, I won't make that same error again. So even though crashes hurt and they're quite dangerous, um, for me it's taught me the biggest, most valuable lessons. Um, and yeah, I've been in like hospital and stuff with with making mistakes. But yeah, it, it that's just the sort of person I am. I I make the catastrophic mistakes and then learn from them and don't make them again. Um, and I actually think that's helped me massively. Um, and it's so important that when you crash, you don't get frustrated with it because it's a really frustrating sport because you do make mistakes all the time. Um, and I think now I've learned that it's fine to make mistakes and I've seen the outcome of making a mistake so passing that on to the next bunch of athletes that are now just coming into the program um, they can't relate with that yet because they they're still getting frustrated they're in, still in that phase of frustration um, and it's so easy to say to someone stop getting frustrated but it's not until you've had the experience that you can then deal with the frustrations the frustrations are always there but it's how you deal with it i think so obviously there's quite a lot about resilience and stuff is that did have you had that from a young age in all of your sporting yeah um, situations I've, I've that's sort of like a natural thing that i have um i was always known in when i was playing tennis to never give up on a ball so if i was being ran side to side I was always that person that would annoy everyone because I'd just keep getting the ball back. Um, and yeah, I think that's always shown how determined I've been to to just never give up and always do my best. I suppose it's quite a good crossover for where you are now. Like you said if it's a sport where you constantly make mistakes, <laughs> yeah. kind of having that outlook of going, uh, it's fine, I'll, yeah. I'll get the next one. or I'll do Yeah, the next I never one. reached that point in tennis. It was like... Um, I wasn't quite mature enough yet to understand the frustration side of it and I used to like throw my racket and stuff and shout and hit myself like hit my legs um but yeah I think I've grown up a bit since then so in terms of like technique so a shoulder steer mm. like you've mentioned there obviously the coaches can tell you to do it but if one of your coaches told me to try and do a shoulder steer or even a basic track I'd have no idea kind of what they're on about or how to do it so how do you actually learn like what it is yeah and how to do it um i remember they got us in a room and they were like right we're gonna go through the ways you can steer and it's literally you put pressure into the sled with your shoulder so you push forwards with your shoulder 
and that will make you go in one direction and then the other shoulder will make you go in the other direction um, and equally you can do the same with your knees um, so firstly they'd start telling us okay steer in this corner at this point with your left knee uh, just for example um, so okay you go in and do that you don't feel like it's done anything <laughs> um, until well what you can do when you turn up to track is go down with no steers um, some tracks you can get away with it and then once you put steers in you can see the difference that it makes um, so that's sort of how they taught us so we turned up to the track and did nothing and then we gradually added a few steers in um, and we also steer with our head and they say just move it gradually to the side because then it will change the wind flow um, but what I found is that I was just jerking my head really like violently to the side and then that was just making me go sideways down the track and skid um, so it was yeah it's more about how you do those steers and and it is really hard to teach that um, and to learn that um, and like I say it is really through experience but they'll just say yeah put a left shoulder in put a right shoulder in um, and just see what happens sort of thing so there's no like set way of coaching steers um, because they are just the basics and everyone does it slightly differently as well. So it must be quite quite hard, obviously, not that you're old, but an older mm -hmm. age to have to learn those types of techniques it must be quite difficult, mm -hmm. I'd imagine. It's quite a hard thing like if I was to go and try and do a new sport to learn to do all these things. How long would you say it took you to go from no experience, kind of you're just in a room going, this is what you do for a shoulder steer, this is what you do for a knee steer, to where you felt comfortable when they gave you that instruction or when you go, oh, this corner's coming up, so it means I use this type of steer. How long would you say that process took? Um, I think until I fully understood it, it took me probably at least one season. Um, to really to think for myself and not just have to rely on what the coach has told me because in skeleton there's so many corners there's like 16 corners on a the track they they stand there and film but they can only film like three corners if we've got three members of staff with us so it's really important that I can recall what went well and what went wrong in corners so I can make the changes um, so when you're in your first season you do well if you can even remember what happened on the run like it's just so fast it comes at you so quickly um but you can't just rely on the coach all the time um yeah you have to think for yourself so i think yeah that took me at least a season to to be able to do that and this was my third season this year and i think that's still definitely a work on i think you can always work on that side of it um but at least I can recall everything that happened on a run now um, and make the changes myself. So that in itself is quite, I guess, quite a skill, being able to remember 16 corners yeah. and how much you're going to steer and all that type of stuff. Have you naturally got decent memory or is that just something that as you've gone along? Um, I think I'm quite natural at it. Um, I think if you aren't natural at it, then you really have to work hard to... As soon as you get to the bottom write it all down whereas i can still remember runs from a few weeks ago i can still remember what went well in some of the runs and um yeah i do feel like it's kind of natural um and i'm starting to be more natural on the sled and stuff and just allowing it to to what we call it, allow it to run so allow it to just go and you're just laying on it um because then um, you're going to be quicker because that's the relaxed way of sliding. So, um, obviously, you mentioned at the start of your journey, there's a lot of kind of coach-led stuff. Um, how did they start giving you more ownership in terms of your development on ice and kind of understanding the sport as well? Because I guess you've gone from no, no real understanding of what it is yeah. to now being in a position where you understand it relatively well. How did they start giving you ownership in that? Um, so we do a lot of video feedback um, and we do like uh, radio feedback at the track so we'll radio to the coach 
and they will make us tell them what happened in the corner that they were standing at. Um, and then they'll be like, yeah, that's right. Um, so what are you going to change? And then you need to tell them. Or they'll be like, no, that's completely wrong. Go back and have a rethink. Um, so that's how they sort of start that transition into thinking for yourself. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's just kind of a natural process now. I don't have to rely on the coach all the time. I usually know what's happened. I'm at the point now where I can do that myself. And then that... In terms of teams, how many of you go to each event? How many of you are there? How many coaches to athlete ratios is there? All that type of stuff. Um, it kind of varies with um, the amount of staff that we have. We have one coach per um, circuit. So I was on the Europe, Europa Cup circuit. So we had one ice coach. Um, then you have a physio um, and maybe your soft tissue um person as well and sometimes you have a start coach as well so um he coaches the push um so the maximum you probably have is four but usually probably three um and we had uh, i think we had six athletes on that circuit this year um we have eight spots so four men four women on that circuit so it could be three members of staff to eight athletes um on the training camp, we train um, with the group that are lower down in the programme. Um, and I think there was 18 of us at one point and three members of staff. So there was one ice coach. So actually, our group, as the more experienced group, coached the beginner group. Um, so that was actually a really good way of taking ownership ourselves as well. Obviously, there you, you said about you being able to coach kind of the people lower down in the process. Did you have that when you came in as well? Did you have more senior people above you? Um, we had senior people above us, but we never had that sort of mentoring uh, scheme. Um, so actually when we came into our third year of sliding, I, I said to the programme, I'd, I'd like to do that for the, the new people um, because I realised what a benefit it could be. Because um, we train all together in summer here at Bath and um, just speaking to the senior athletes about their experiences, I soaked up so much about competing. So it kind of gave me a head start on what it was going to be like. Um, and then, yeah, I realised that could be really valuable for our new athletes. So it was great to be able to pass our knowledge because we'd obviously recently been in their position as well. It's hard for the coach to remember because he was a slider as well it's hard for him to remember exactly what it was like and yeah it, I think it was nice for them to have us there to have that and um, yeah I wish that we could have had that as well because like I said I think it would have been really beneficial learning from all the experiences of the older athletes. And those younger ones, are they now kind of reaching out to you a little bit more? Because I imagine initially it's probably led by the more senior people kind of going and speaking to them. Do they come and reach out to you and go, oh, I'm having problems with this, what did you do? Yeah, definitely. We have like a buddy system. So you'll have like one or two athletes um, that you kind of look after. Um, and you every night just sit down with them and say, what are your goals for tomorrow? What are your plans? Um anything you're struggling with it doesn't even have to be sliding related because we're away on season for such a long time um over the winter um that it could even be like team dynamic stuff um because we're all different people and we're all thrown into this program and we have to get on because it's not going to function if we don't um so it's all about understanding each other's personalities what makes them tick um and just having someone there with experience of sort of molding around other people i think is important for them as well because yeah our team dynamics are so important um helping each other out because of the small number of staff that we have as well we have to do a lot for ourselves so obviously you mentioned there kind of your your seasons in terms of in season out of season can you just talk through kind of from i guess preparation into your season what that looks like your training schedule 
kind of what that looks like going through to approaching the season and then when you're actually in the season mm-hmm. kind of what that looks like yeah we have a really long sort of preparation phase um it goes from may until the start of october um and in that time we are literally just getting so strong and as fast as possible we get beasted in the gym uh, we train six days a week monday to saturday throughout the summer um and then we have like pre-season in october where we go to a track and we just spend about three weeks there just getting into sliding again because we can't slide for like six months of the year um so you kind of forget little bits and it's just about getting back into it um and then competitions tend to start in about november time through to sort of march and then uh we have March, yeah, we have March as a month of training. Uh, so we come back from season and we just get beasted. <laughs> All the strength that we've lost through the competition phase, we get back very quickly. Um, massive doms and stuff that come with it. You can't walk downstairs the next day. But um, then in April, we get two weeks completely off. Um, and then the following two weeks, we get um we train but you can be at home for that so it's kind of like a month of downtime where you kind of don't have to be around the the team that you've been so close with for the last six months or so living on top of each other um so it's nice just to have that break and then yeah come back and get back into it again in may so it's not long for you then you're almost back into your kind of pre-season phase or going sorry going prep phase in terms of your six days a week and stuff so what would that look like in terms of a week if you say you're in may time you're kind of two or three weeks into your prep phase i know you said that you train six days a week but day by day what would you do normally um so monday tuesday thursday friday saturday um we'll come in in the morning for like eight o'clock and then we'll spend an hour doing our mobility uh, like foam rolling, stretching um, and activations um, just obviously to limit the injury risk and to just get ready for the day of training. Uh, then we'll go into our first session um, which it depends what day it is. Uh, it could be sprints, it could be on the push track, it could be gym um, or core and like upper body type session um, and then that will last like an hour to an hour and a half. Then we'll have about two hour break and then we'll do another training session. Uh, we only train once, do the one session on the Saturday, but Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, we'll do another session. So it could be like conditioning or one of the sessions I've said, but the other way around. Um, and then Wednesday is sort of like active recovery. So do like 20 minutes on a bike, go for a walk or something. Um, and then Sunday is our day to just rest. Um, but obviously around all those training sessions, you've got physio slots to fit in, um, soft tissue, nutrition, maybe doctors, anything like that, meetings. Um, so actually your day can be like eight till four-ish, which isn't bad at all. Like you're home quite early and it's quite nice, but it is really exhausting at the same time. And then obviously when you go home, you're still an athlete. It's not like you're an athlete when you come to training and then you switch off when you get home. You've got to think about everything you do. So like nutrition, obviously. Um, And then also working. Uh, I actually started off working in McDonald's, um, which is not the best job for an athlete because you're on your feet all the time running around after people. I think I I'm probably food. getting hungry as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you get the, the food on your break and you're like, no, don't eat it. Yeah. <laughs> I used to bring it in for my coaches the next morning. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's you, you have to think about all the factors that affect your training. I had to pack that job in because it was influencing too badly on my training. And I was like, if I'm going to do this seriously, I need to think of a job that's actually not going to ruin my training and the effects that it has on my body so what did you change to um so i managed to 
get in contact with uh, t- uh, the tribe team here at Bath, um, doing some coaching. So it's just a few hours in the evening, which is perfect after training. Um, and then I also do a lot of school talks. So schools will come to the uni here and then I'll just talk about what it's like to be an athlete, um, which I really enjoy. I try to like be a role model and inspire the kids. And actually a few people have said, I really want to be a skeleton athlete. And to hear that is, is really nice because no one ever says that. <laughs> Everyone says they want to be a footballer, but no one says they want to be a skeleton athlete. So... Yeah, it's quite rewarding at the same time. Yeah, it must be nice kind of working with those younger generations and getting them to introduce them to the sport, I guess. Yeah. And hopefully if they see coverage on TV or anything, they'll go, oh, yeah, no, she spoke to me at Bath Uni. Yeah. And whatnot. Um, so in terms of like your gym programs or your sprint programs, how much ownership do you get around them? Or is that dictated to you by kind of S&C coaches or that type of stuff? Yeah, it's quite dictated by the S&C coaches. So they'll write a sort of four-week block training plan and you stick to that. It's got all the exercises on. And they'll they'll be in every session with us. Um, most of it is coached. There's only a couple of sessions that are self-led. Um, but, yeah, we don't get much say in it. Uh, you get more say as you are on season so they'll say do a double leg lift so then I'll choose like back squat or something and then they'll say you can do a single leg lift and I'll choose I don't know step ups for example um, and you get to choose hamstring exercise as well so you get a, a bit um, of ownership but throughout the summer you you do what they say kind of yeah so in terms of um like the hardest sessions that you do in terms of physical output and stuff mm. one I guess can you remember them and two <laughs> could you explain what they are because yeah. I think it'd be quite interesting to see the level of well yeah work that goes into it people probably think that it's not probably that hard at all but remember that we're power athletes with no sort of endurance or fitness to, um, we call the sessions capacity sessions so they only take about 20 minutes to complete, but you have typically about five exercises and loads of reps, so like 60 reps of each exercise, and you have to do them as quickly as possible um, with the best technique. So the rule is, if your technique fails, stop and have like 30 second break. Um, but they're typically like body weight exercises, so... Um, like a, a glute ham bridge where you put your heel on like a higher box and then like hip thrust up sort of thing. So like single leg, you do like 60 on each leg, um, which is just exhausting, but <laughs> we find. But then there's five exercises, like reverse lunge, step ups are a killer. You'll do that with a, just a barbell, sometimes a bit of weight. But, oh, those sessions are disgusting and when I first came into the program it made me want to just cry you almost got nervous for the sessions because they hurt that much so obviously you'd come in from being at Sheffield Uni uh, Sheffield Hallam Uni yeah. and obviously working kind of towards a sports degree and all that type of stuff although you'd done sport when you were younger I'm guessing you're probably enjoying a little bit of a university lifestyle yeah. and all that type of stuff how much of a baptism of fire was that going from kind of being a uni student to then kind of doing those types of sessions or being in a kind of an elite performance environment? It was so difficult. I remember saying to one of the senior athletes, I was like, I've never done this much exercise in my life. This is insane. I was actually thinking, how am I going to do this for the next 10 years? I can't do it for a week, let alone 10 years. <laughs> so it was a massive shock. But actually, if someone gave me the session one of the sessions that I had in the first year of training I find it really easy now um, and it, the progression is so quick like the adaptations to strength it just happens so quickly it's kind of mind-blowing how strong I got within like 12 weeks of training um, but yeah it was a shock to the system also the getting up at 6am for me ooh, coming out of uni and <laughs> struggling with 9am lectures and then having to get up at six was uh 
yeah, I was having to do like two hour naps in the afternoon <laughs> to try and get through. Did you have any crossover from what were you studying at Sheffield Hallam? What was I studying? Yeah. Uh, sport and exercise science. So did you have any crossover to the stuff that you were doing and kind of going, oh, actually, I did a module on this or I did some work on that? Yeah, like especially the SNC stuff. I learned, I've learned so much from being in, in the skeleton programme um, that you just can't learn through a degree because of the experience and you're seeing it for yourself. Um, and... Yeah, it just shows how important getting experience is alongside like your degree, because um, you learn all the theory, but then you can't actually see it in practice. So, yeah, I've learned a hell of a lot of stuff that w- will make me a much better practitioner in the future. So I'm guessing for you, kind of being able to see and feel that adaptation of going through a strength conditioning program and stuff is a real benefit, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Um, Hopefully, if I, in the future, after skeleton, if I do work with elite athletes, then I'll have so much that I can pass on um, and hopefully help to improve whatever athletes I work with. Okay, so I'm going to kind of go back to right at the very start. You obviously mentioned you've got quite sporty parents and quite Mm. sporting background. Can you just kind of talk through, as a kid, how much you're involved with sport, what types of sports you're involved in, all that type of stuff? Uh, well, I did literally everything. Um, even the sports I didn't enjoy so much, like tag rugby and stuff. Um, I did. I was on like the football team at primary school against boys and stuff. Um, my main sport was obviously tennis. Um, I did badminton, so like a high school level. Um, I'd do rounders at lunchtime and after school hockey. Uh, netball literally I was that person that I was kind of good at everything and annoyed people for that reason Um, I was on literally every school team Um, but then alongside uh, we didn't do any tennis at school but that was my main sport after school and then my parents would give up their time at the weekends to take me to tournaments um, all over the country so yeah, I literally did everything. But I think that's been really important because of all the skills that you learn. Um, I've now been able to like channel them all and transfer them into skeleton. Skeleton sounds like a weird sport, is that? But there's a lot of crossover between other sports as well. Like what? Um, things like um, well, obviously you've got like your raw sprint speed at start um, and power, and then decision making is a massive one so deciding what steers you're going to do um and from tennis like deciding what shot you're going to play that's really similar also coordination is a massive one just loading onto the sled and not missing the sled um and yeah just just things like that small things that actually have a really impact big impact on on sport so so you mentioned tennis was kind of your main one what made you go down that route compared to all the others um i can't actually remember i think i just really enjoyed it because i did a lot of cycling as well because obviously my parents were cyclists um and i think i got a bit cycling got a bit boring because we were talking about it all the time and then i found tennis and it was like a new ooh, tennis shiny tennis <laughs> um sort of yeah uh, cycling got boring, found tennis, enjoyed it. Um, I think I was actually really rubbish when I started, but just sort of stuck with it. I was, I think I was seven. Um, and then, yeah, by the time I was sort of 12, I was playing a lot of competitions and things um, and actually got to a decent level where I started winning matches and then winning tournaments and then realised I, I could actually be half decent at it. Um but then when I think I was about 16, I actually wanted to quit. I'd sort of felt like I reached my potential um, and wasn't getting the enjoyment out of it anymore that I used to. Um, and then, but I stuck with it through college and then went to uni and it was a bit more enjoyable because you have like the team aspect of it. You're not just playing for yourself anymore, a bit more social. Um so yeah, I sort of saw it through to the end of uni and it was, Skeleton came at the perfect time because the crossover was good timing and I was going to probably stop tennis anyway. So 
yeah, it was good to be able to come into Skeleton sort of refreshed. Was there a reason why you felt as like you weren't enjoying it as much as you had been? Um, I think it was it was just like the whole thing of I couldn't feel myself improving as much anymore. Um, I found other more enjoyable things in my life. Um, I was really enjoying college and the course I did. I did um, a sport BTEC at college, which was like the best course I've ever done. That was at Loughborough College. Um, and yeah, I knew I wanted to go to uni and I, I almost didn't sign up for the tennis team. I almost signed up for the badminton team because I enjoyed that more. Um, but I ended up getting on the team and then just just went with it. But I do kind of wish I'd tried more different sports at uni, though. I'd love to try ice hockey, actually. Okay. Why <laughs> that? Someone. I don't know. It just, just looks really fun and you get stuck in and have a laugh, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so it's obviously quite interesting. You mentioned earlier that you got quite frustrated when you were doing tennis and you used to get annoyed with yourself. Mm. What was the reasoning for that? In terms of looking back now, can you go, actually, I got annoyed for these reasons? or I think because I just wanted to win um, and didn't fully accept that you still lose points when you win a match. You can't win all the points. Um, but, yeah, I think I was just, like, hungry for it. And it was... The frustrations were almost a positive thing because I wanted to win, whereas you see other girls that just didn't really care and didn't show any emotions because they weren't really fussed about winning or losing. But I've always had that drive where I want, I just want to win. Um, not at all costs, like it's not like life and death, but I've always just wanted to do my best and hope that's enough to win. So it's really frustrating when you're making silly mistakes that you don't make in training. Um, and then I think that's the frustrating thing. Because in a match it's different because you get a bit uptight and you don't hit the shots in a relaxed manner, so they'll go in the net or whatever. So I think that's the most frustrating part, because you know you're better than what you're currently playing at. Were you known in your local area as like a media tennis player, or was it just kind of a sportswoman? Uh, tennis, I think, yeah, because I was in the local club there and like won titles and stuff, so then was in the local paper. Um, and because I played for... Oh, it must have been about, I don't know, about 12 years. I And I'd been in the same club since I started, um, but I'm definitely known as the skeleton athlete <laughs> now. I've had a lot of coverage at home and won sort of sports awards off the back of that. So that's sort of what I'm merging to be now. So it's, I guess it's particularly for someone who's younger, having that identity linked to the sport is quite a tough thing so if I imagine being your age and going you're known for being a tennis player and if you're not doing well at that kind of you link that to your identities you're going oh if they don't like me as a tennis player they might not like me as a person and there's a lot of research that suggests that how did you find that transition to then going I'm not the tennis player anymore I'm a Bob Skelton athlete yeah in terms of when you went home were people looking at you funny were they kind of like where's this come from or <laughs> How did that work? I think it was a bit of a shock to people, purely because of the sport. If it was a more well-known sport, it probably wouldn't be as shocking, but because it's skeleton, they're like, you're crazy. But actually, they've all got behind me, more people than, like, people that I don't even know. Um, and I get all these, like, nice messages on Facebook and all on social media, and that everyone's just sort of turned and they're all behind me. Um a lot more than they were for tennis because this is a, a much higher level because it's international and people just want to sort of be a part of it and it's really nice like like I say the messages I get and just from people I don't know so they kind of mean more because they don't have to send you that message um, but they've taken the time to do that and say some nice things that can help you get through the bad days as well in training when you're having a really tough session or you feel like, I don't know, you've got worse for some reason, um, it's nice to know that those people back at home still support you. Do you think there's any correlation to why you don't get as frustrated now because of that stuff? The programme don't let me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They, 
They saw it in me quickly and quickly shut it down. What ways did they do that? Um, we just sort of had meetings and, and just them bringing attention to it for me was enough because I always knew it was there but couldn't really admit it to myself. Um, but yeah, so just bringing attention and then um, I had one meeting with the psychologist as well who just spoke me through like how the brain works and how we're negatively wired and things because I am known for being a really negative person. <laughs> so since coming into the program, I've definitely switched my head around and I think that's been a major part in my success so far. Just being more positive around yeah. those mistakes and that yeah, type of like, stuff. Yeah, and if they hear me say something negative, they're like, no, like, <laughs> change that sentence and say it in a more positive way. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. That's a better outlet to have, I guess, and that's something as you've matured as a person, you probably, and had that extra support would have helped. Yeah, for sure. Which would have helped you as an athlete. You're on an international stage now, doing really, really well. What are your aims and goals? So next year, I want to be competing on the circuit above um, what the one I competed on this year, and it's called the Intercontinental Intercontinental Cup Circuit, um, and that's sort of worldwide. Whereas the Europa Cup one was just Europe, um, and it's just below the World Cup uh, circuit, which is the highest level. Um, so I'd like to compete on that and then the goal would be to then qualify myself a spot for the following season on World Cup because the following season is the Olympic Games year um, and because I was successful this year it's kind of put my foot in the door a bit for Beijing 2022 for the Games um, whereas before this season I didn't really consider myself in any sort of contention for a place but if my trajectory keeps improving at the rate it is, um, then I don't see why I couldn't get to that Games and compete there. But it'd be more for experience. I don't think I'd be a medal contender. Um, but then long term, uh, I'd be looking to win, hopefully gold, um, at 2026 um, in Milan, Cortina in Italy. So that's sort of a long term goal. But um I've got a lot of work to do. Just because I was successful this year, obviously, my feet are completely on the ground. Um, I need to improve my push, firstly. Um, knock at least a tenth of a second off. Which sounds really easy, but honestly, a tenth of a second is so, so much time um, when you're sprinting. Um, and, yeah, just to keep steadily improving my sliding skills as well because my sliding skills are a lot better than my pushing skills so I'd like to bring my pushing up to up to where my sliding is and then push on my sliding a bit more to compete for medals on that ICC circuit. So how how would you go about the pushing skills how would you go well how are you gonna go about improving those um i've got a load of like meetings lined up with coaches um sort of head of performance and yeah i'm not sure how it how it's going to look yet but we're gonna talk about it in depth i'm sure because i didn't do as well on that aspect of the sport this year as i'd like to have been um i'd still improve from last year but not as much as I expected to and what my summer training it, uh, summer training was going really well and then it did, just didn't quite transfer onto ice so yeah we just need to identify what went wrong um, and then just see where we can make the biggest improvements and then in terms of obviously moving up a band in terms of competition and stuff do you guys um, race at the same circuit so are you able to see comparable times to what they the people in the higher band have achieved to what you've achieved this year? Yeah, so there was one race in Germany um, where we raced on the same day, at both circuits raced on the same day. Um, so actually I could then see what my times could have been in that race. Um, so it's really good to see. And it was actually really positive. I think I could have achieved like fourth or something. So that was great to know that. But it is hard to... Um, compare sometimes because ice conditions like if it's a bit warm the ice will be slower than if it was like I don't know minus 10 for example the ice is a lot quicker when it's colder so you have to take into account that the ice might be different so you can't get carried away with all the comparisons um, you can just do sort of rough guidelines but 
yeah, it is really useful and you can look through all the past um, results on each circuit. You can see what times they did, what push times, what speeds they achieved and just see like where you are in comparison to that marker. Do you spend a lot of time doing that in terms of seeing what possible opponents or rivals might have achieved um, or what you're doing that? Or I just, um, before I get to a track, I'll just see what the year before was like. But like I say, the ice can be so different. Um, and I don't look at the competition because you don't know who's going to be there. And like I say, I like to focus on myself now. Yeah. So although Skeleton, obviously, you're competing against other people, it doesn't really feel like head-to-head, like a team sport would, for example, where you're literally having to beat the other people. So in terms of uh, countries and whatnot, do they have a particular, do countries have like particular styles or particular types of athletes that you think, or you can see that they try and recruit, or is it quite individualised in terms of who each country tries to attract? Um, Most of the countries have clubs, Um, so like we have all of our sporting clubs like grassroots, they have grassroots skeleton, so they all start when they're about 10. So that's why it's really difficult for for Great Britain to then catch up with them. We're on like a fast track to skip the 10 years that we've missed and just get to that level. And that's why we focus so much on pushing quickly at the start because it gives you like that head start. And then because we're obviously still learning how to slide, um, it then you can make a couple more mistakes and still be within a chance of a medal. Um, so yeah, they they just get the talent coming through their clubs, and that's also why they're like massive competition because they've got so much experience on us. So, do you know anything about that pathway at all in terms of what that would look like for a young kid coming through? Um, I think they just obviously just join the sport, the the club, do the sport for a few years, and then I think every year they just have trials to get into the um, national squad. And then they'll get put, like, distributed around the circuit, depending on how well they did in the selection race. Um, I think that's how it works. Um, quite straightforward. Um, but um, I don't know too much about it. And in terms of countries that are kind of leading the way in terms of ability to get medals at big competitions yeah. and stuff, are they, are they the ones that have those pathways or is there a mixture? Yeah, Germany are the ones that have those big clubs and they probably have the most people doing skeleton out of all the nations. Um, so it obviously works, but they are known for not pushing as quickly as other nations. Um, so like their sliding is amazing. You watch them and you're just like, oh my God, this is what I want to be like. But then their push is a little bit off, off where it should be. Um, but they can make up that deficit in their sliding because they are just impeccable. Um, but also the Russians are really good too. I think they, I'm not sure if they've got clubs or not, but they, because they had the Olympics uh, Sochi in 2014, they've now got their own track. So then they can just train, um, have as many runs as they want throughout the winter on that track. Um, so yeah, they're sort of the two biggest rivals for us. Do you get an opportunity to knowledge share with some of their camps, some of their um, athletes, or is it all behind closed doors? (laughs) Yeah, if we are in a race week, I was talking with my coach and I was being naive, and he was like, he he walked off, and I was like, oh, why have you walked off? And he was like, he's come over here. We can't talk about it in the changing room, and I was like, oh yeah. So you you have to have those conversations outside of the changing room if you're talking about lines and steers and things. We don't want to give anything away and equally well the Germans are kind of known on the German tracks for having their own changing room so they won't be with everyone else they'll have their own one so yeah so we don't ever get to hear really what their lines and things are and then in terms of like next year obviously trying to go to that that higher band where do those races take place are they predominantly Europe with a little bit of further travel or is it kind of a free-for-all in terms of places where it yeah. is based? Um, I think the majority, I think it's kind of half and half between um, Europe and then sort of 
Canada, USA, and then this year they also had one in South Korea, um, and I actually got picked to go to that one. So I have had experience on that circuit because um, I did well on the lower one. They decided to give me the opportunity to see what it was like and see if I was competitive. Um, and that was the Pyeongchang track from the 2018 Olympics. So um, going there was amazing as well. Like just the culture difference was amazing because if I get to Beijing 2022, it's going to be kind of a similar culture and um, like the traveling and the jet lag. It was, it was a really good experience to sort of get that under my belt and see how I coped. Um, but yeah, the learning, also going to a track where I'd had no runs before. I had seven runs down the track, which equates to about seven minutes. Um, and then I had to go and race on it. Um, that was a really good experience as well, because the tracks for Olympics are usually brand new. So you don't get many runs before competing on it. So how was that? South Korea, obviously that area in itself is amazing in terms of the cultural differences and stuff what did you pick up on sporting wise or just culturally itself what was different um really good food okay <laughs> um it's like what their udon noodles are amazing and like these pork cutlet things and curry sauce oh so good <laughs> not many vegetables though <laughs> um but sporting wise i think sporting wise kind of similar but if you watch the Korean athletes they're so disciplined and respectful of everyone around them I was sort of in awe of like of that side of it um and actually the Korean um one of the Korean men won on the home track um and the support for him there was incredible it was so loud I'd never been to a race like that before and they did a whole YouTube stream which you never get at that level and they did like, you had to like wave to the camera and then like a leader's box. If you came down in first place, you'd stand in the leader's box. And that's kind of what it's more like on the bigger circuit. So the World Cup circuit and World Champs. Um, so yeah, it was really good to get that sort of experience um, from moving forwards. And did that change anything for you on the race days or you managed to stay consistent to what you've done before? I was surprised. I thought, because there was like cameras in your face at the start, I was thinking, oh God, that's going to put me off. But I didn't even notice it come race day. I was purely focused on looking down that track and doing the best that I could. And then obviously you would have been kind of in training when those Winter Olympics and stuff were mm -hmm. going on. How did it feel going back to... Uh, a track where you'd probably seen kind of compatriots and stuff competing at that a year earlier or at the time. Yeah. How was that? Well, I was only in my first year of sliding when um, the 2018 games were on, so I could not relate to it at all. <laughs> I was just watching them come down this track like they all look really good to me. <laughs> so then actually going to the track, it's actually a really difficult track, and I was really surprised because. At the Olympics, everyone's really good and makes the sport look really easy. Um, no one ever gets to see what it's like on the lower circuits when we when we do make more mistakes and there's less experienced people. Um, I think you get more respect for what the sport actually involves. Um, so yeah, it kind of took me by surprise how different it was and it didn't have all obviously the olympic branding and everything it just looked like a bog standard track um but but the organization of the event was almost like they were replicating the olympics and it was it was a really great event to be part of as well and then i guess moving forward obviously said the kind of the hopes would be be able to go up those phases and then go to the Olympics. Have you got any athletes who are more senior than you, more senior than you, that have been to the Olympics that you've got access to to kind of gauge what it might be like or steps that they took to get to that level or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. So we have athlete mentors. Um, so like Amy Williams, who won gold in twenty ten, she. Um, mentors like the newer athletes um, my athlete mentor is uh, she's called Donna she didn't quite make the Olympics but she was at the World Cup um, level and like 
had really good results there so she has got so much experience that I can tap into um, and then like for example Lizzie Yarnold is really helpful as well and Laura Dees who won gold is still on the uh, sorry she won bronze who's still on the program I'll just chat to her in in the lounge upstairs and she's so accommodating she'll talk about anything um, and yeah, just just like all the seniors that are on World Cup and been to World Champs, um, they've just come back from World Champs, so I'll be definitely asking questions about what it was like, because I'd love to get a space, um, a spot for next year as well. Okay, and so this last question, I ask this to everyone, um, which is, who is the best, I guess for you, kind of rider or whatnot that you competed against or coach that you've worked with or against and why i feel like i shouldn't say coach because if they hear it <laughs> the coaches hear it but there's two there's two coaches um in the program that i worked with on the circuit this year and i really put my success down to them well obviously it was me as well but they really helped me because the way they were in the competition environment, they kept me so calm and just chilled. Um, I didn't have to worry about anything. It was all sort of, don't worry, it's fine, like, chill out, I'll do that. You just focus on you. Um, and just like, just saying little things at the right time really helped me because I didn't know how I was going to be in a competition because um, I'd never done one. Um, so, yeah, for, for me, it was definitely those two coaches that helped me massively to to well win a gold medal like when I said I was in that first position after the first run I went to the coach and I was like how am I going to do that again and he reassured me like you're you've got the skills to do it you're you can do better as well so just go and do it and yeah that's that's what helped me majorly in terms of the best athlete that I've gone against hmm. well I've gone against a lot of Germans <laughs> like they're all equally as good as each other but actually I've, I was pretty proud that I managed to beat most of the Germans in every race so um, but if I said names people probably wouldn't know who they are so but yeah a lot of the Germans okay and then I guess on the last one is also you mentioned you won the gold yeah. How is that in terms of you've gone to an event, you've won a gold medal for your country and whatnot? Yeah. How how was that feeling, and how did that motivate motivate you moving forward? Um, standing on that top of that podium and then getting the flag go up with the national anthem, that was just amazing. I think I ended up getting that three times throughout the season. It never gets old. Like each time, it brings goosebumps to you, even though it's not on like the World Cup stage. It's still, I've just won a medal for my country and this is what I've been training for. Um, so to realise that you've actually achieved that is so good. Um, and I just want to keep doing that because the pride that comes with it and then all of those comments on social media and stuff, everyone's seeing it. People see you in the street at home and congratulate you and stuff. It's, it's just a really nice feeling. And, Hopefully, if I ever get an Olympic medal, then that'll escalate to new heights that I probably can't even imagine. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time because I know you're obviously very busy with mm -hmm. kind of planning and doing training, all that type of stuff. But it's been great talking to you and uh, all the best with your endeavours. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.